a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yeah, I know, I sound like I'm talking through my nose today because I got a cold. The good news is you can't catch it, but I hope you do catch the fever for freedom. And uh, to help me as a super spreader, I brought uh, my friend Eric Peters aboard. How are you, Eric? I'm good, Brian. That was a great intro, particularly since EV fever seems to be cooling down a little bit. Oh, do tell. By the way, I have seen more and more articles in, in you know, mainstream, you know, approved news journals saying that, uh, boy, the, the dealers are getting concerned because those EVs are stacking up. What's the latest word? Well, the latest word is that Ford just announced that it's going to curtail production of the Lightning, which is its electric version of the very popular F-150 by half uh, because they can't sell them. Um, and the ratio is interesting. You know, it's it's about 5% of the volume of, uh, of total F-150 sales uh, constitutes these electric vehicles. And they're stacking up on dealers' lots. People aren't buying them. Uh, so, you know, Ford continues to build them and shove them out there. And they're just piling up on these dealers' lots. And it's not just the money losses. It's becoming an embarrassment to, to see all these unsold vehicles on dealers' lots. You know, people can, can, can kind of sense the smell of death in the air. So they're, you know, they're having to do something about it. But the, you know, the catch is, this is really interesting. Ford is only building these these Lightnings in order to improve its corporate average fuel economy math. You know, they credit the government credits the Lightning with getting 76 mpge, and that's this oily sleight of hand where they make it seem as though an EV is more efficient than a gas-powered car by not counting the efficiency losses uh, of generating electricity at a utility plant, not counting the losses of transmitting it, and so on. Anyway, they make it look like, wow, this thing gets three times the gas mileage of a regular F-150, and Ford gets the credit for it. You know, So their cafe map, it's an average, corporate average fuel economy. So for every F-150 that they sell that averages 22 miles per gallon, that pulls down the number. And the EV, of course, helps to raise it. And you know, this is a big deal for them because in two years, they're going to have to average close to 50 miles per gallon. So they're in this impossible position of having to manufacture these, these, these electric vehicles that don't sell. But in order to sell the vehicles that people want to buy, they have to continue to manufacture more of these EVs. Holy cow. Now, I have to ask this question, even though it seems absurd. Are we coming to a point where it's going to be mandatory that we purchase an electric vehicle? I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, the policy of pushing the internal combustion engines off the road. I mean, like a law will be passing every household must you know, must put out money to buy one of these. No, they're more clever than that. They're not going to do it that way. What they will do is just make it increasingly difficult to keep a vehicle that isn't electric. Uh, They'll do things as, for example, they've already done in Europe where uh, they either forbid you from driving into certain areas if you don't have a so-called zero emissions vehicle or they hit you with a special surcharge for doing that. Like in London, they charge you $15 for every trip into town. And of course, that would add up if you if you were a commuter, let's say, going into London every day and back. You know, that's a lot of money. Uh, or uh, they're going to apply carbon taxes through the registration system, things like that. Or they'll just make gas cost ten dollars a gallon. They'll do all of those things because it's 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 sneakier than just coming right out and saying, no, you know, you're not going to be allowed to buy anything other than an electric car or 
uh, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to make you buy an electric car. They'll just give you a choice that's no choice at all. Wow. By the way, if you if you want another reason not to uh, to buy an electric car, I would recommend take a gag suppressant and watch the movie Leave the World Behind. It's a, it's a Barack and Michelle Obama produced movie, and, and it really feels like predictive programming. But one of the aspects of that movie, and I'm going to give you some spoilers here, hackers destroy the Internet, destroy, they hack all electronic things. And one of the things they do is they make every electronic car out there, including all the Teslas, crash. <laughs> they, I mean, they like literally run them into each other to blockade the roads and to sow chaos. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised by that. And that's one of the things that alarms me, not just about electric cars, but connected cars generally, which is pretty much all of the cars that are currently on the market. They're all uh, amenable to being remotely controlled. And it's something I think a lot of people aren't aware of that they really should begin to understand uh, that the thing may be parked in their garage. They may have the key fob, but at the end of the day, uh, the car can be turned on and off remotely and various systems, including the throttle can be controlled by somebody else from a distance. And it's really a creepy thing. Well, it's, and it, the dependency that it creates is what really is the biggest turnoff to me. And, and you more than anybody have opened my eyes to, you know, look, you're dependent on the charging stations, how far they are apart, how accessible they are. In other words, how long is the line and, and not to mention connected at all times and being able to be shut off with the click of a mouse. And, you know, of course, not to mention the cost. I, I did an article the other day about uh, Fiat, which is bringing back the little 500 microcar that they sold here for a number of years until just before the, the so-called pandemic. You remember the little 500? Um, yeah. Well, they're bringing it back, but this time it's going to be only available as an electric vehicle. And uh, they're, they're, they're touting how affordable it is. And guess how affordable it is? It only costs $34,000 to start. That's the new entry level, $34,000 to get into uh, a lower-end EV. Dang. Well, it must be nice, but uh, just like Nancy Reagan taught me back in the 80s, no. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to say yeah, no. The sooner we all activate our no button, the better. <laughs> uh, that You know, you and I have talked about this a number of times, and uh, it, it bears repeating over and over until more more people get it. It's enough. It's time to say no. If enough of us do that, then this ends. We have the power. We just have to exercise it. So let's talk for a moment about uh, Alex Jones. He is back mm-hmm. on Twitter, and there is a meltdown of epic proportions taking place among those who feel that misinformation is a threat to our democracy. Al Gore, I'm looking your direction. <laughs> yeah, isn't it great? Uh, these uh, these self-styled, uh, self-proclaimed defenders of our democracy who ostensibly favor free speech when uh, they're free to speak uh, don't like it very much when uh, somebody else who disagrees with them is permitted to speak. And it just, it says something. If they're so afraid of Alex Jones, maybe he's actually saying some things that are true. <laughs> you know, if, if he were saying something that was utter nonsense and not true, it's pretty easy to, to prove the point. And that, that goes generally. You know, it, truth can stand on its own. It's, it's falsehood that can't. And when you've got people who insist uh, that voices must be suppressed, that tells you that they're afraid of the truth of what those people are saying. No, I, I'm with you there. And, you know, 
to, to hear Al Gore, and maybe you saw this video clip, not only complaining about the idea that, uh, well, you know, misinformation of these algorithms, they're, they're a, th- a threat to our democracy. He actually likened it not only to a threat to our democracy, but they are like a digital AR-15, I believe was his exact comparison. Yeah. Well, Good. it's curious that anybody's giving airtime much less attention to this uh, this washed-up old hack. Um, what job has he held recently other than being a professional hack? Uh, what expertise does he bring to the table about anything? Uh, he, he's an old political hack, and it's just astounding that a person like him has a, a, a forum and, and is treated with respect uh, and, and his opinion solicited. Um, I, you know, I'd rather go down to... I don't know, uh, the, the homeless shelter and, and, and get a schizophrenic there to, to advise me about how to fix my car. Well, I'm grateful that there are still sources of, you know, free speech. Although, does it not seem that more and more you encounter people who are self-censoring because they're just not sure what they can safely say and it's easier to be quiet and, you know, risk uh, to, rather than risk, you know, punishment for saying something that would offend the, the ruling class? Yeah, that's well said. You know, I think one of the defining characteristics of living in an authoritarian state or society, I should say, is precisely that when people feel that they have to be careful about what they say. Hmm, what does that tell you? You know, there was a time when people were free to express themselves, including at work. You might not have liked uh, the politics of your coworker, but, it, you know, you worked with the guy. And certainly the person wasn't going to get fired, you know, assuming that whatever they said wasn't, you know, a call to some kind of violent act. But if they, if they were to say, I, you know, I support the Democratic candidate or I support the Republican candidate, well, that's, that's just how life operates in a free society. People are free to, to support or not support the candidate that seems to suit their interests the best. But we're not free to do that anymore. We're not free to talk about anything anymore because everybody's terrified that if they say anything, oh, heaven forfend, post something on social media, uh, that they are going to be pilloried, fired, excommunicated from society. It's a, it's a very alarming development. Yep. And this is where I'm grateful for individuals like you. And, and there, are, there are many others out there, likewise, who are willing to speak up at some cost. And, you know, I, Eric, I'm not asking you to, hey, wallow in your victimhood, but um, I, I'm sure you have paid a price for, for speaking out as you do. Well, I, the price that I've paid is that I, you know, I probably have lost some work that I might have gotten, uh, you know, if I were to pull my punches and if I were to toe the line. And the really oily thing about this, and I'm sure you've dealt with the same, is it's never actually formally put on the table. You just sort of intuit and understand the things that you're allowed to say and the things that you're not allowed to say. And that if you do say certain things, you're not going to get that job. You're not going to get, uh, you know, that, that request to speak uh, and things of that nature. And it's just, it has this chastening effect on people. I don't care. You know, I've been fortunate enough. I won't say that I was plant. Well, we can talk about it after the break. Yeah, hold that thought. We'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, let's uh, let's pick up where we left off, uh, mm-hmm. talking about the price paid for for speaking up. And and Well, uh, I think it's actually more of an, uh, an opportunity gained. I you know, I made a decision many years ago before the country slipped into this authoritarian morass that we find ourselves in to go off on my own to be independent, run my own store. 
And, you know, it was difficult at first, but the upside to it is that I'm not beholden to anybody. I can, uh, I can say and write what's on my mind. I'm not claiming that I know everything or that I'm always right far from it, but uh, I don't have an overlord telling me what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say. And so I regard that as a tremendous opportunity. And there's an aspect of this that's interesting in that as the media, and I put that in air fingers quotes, becomes uh, more and more uh, suspect uh, and untrustworthy, people are turning away from that, turning back to decentralized media, such as yourself and myself and all these other people out there who are doing what we do. And we're kind of recreating the state of affairs that existed in this country once upon a time, where every town, every community had its own local paper, and every city had several independent major news, independent uh, papers, as opposed to having one consolidated, centralized paper that was really just a kind of facade for the AP or UPI that was reprinting wire copies. So I think it's actually, on balance, a good thing. Sure, years ago I might have I had an opportunity to actually to, to go work at the Wall Street Journal, and if I'd taken that, I could have made a lot of money. But I, at this point, would be a paid shill, basically, for the interests that control that. And I'm so glad that I chose not to take that route. No, I, I hear you. And some people, well, that sounds like sour grapes. But I I have a very similar story. A few years back, uh, when I was living along Utah's Wasatch Front, I had a chance to go audition and uh, and an opportunity um, to, to work for you know the big news talk station and, and the primary news station for Utah. And, you know, I, I've always wanted to, to land there. I've always thought that would be such a prestigious thing. But once I got in there and, and saw um, the reality of, of what that station has become, it's, it's a mouthpiece for the establishment. It is, it is as woke as can be. And I think to myself, oh, my gosh, I dodged a bullet by them not offering me the position that they were looking to fill. I think yep. I would have been you know, miserable. Money is, of course— Money and financial security are important things, but how important is your soul? You know, what value do you place on that piece of paper if you make a deal with the devil, so to speak? Yep. I would take the struggle of living in the gig economy and being a contractor and having to to go out there and hustle for, I I would take that over the, the, you know, regular paycheck, but uh, being muzzled every single time that I sat down behind the microphone. Absolutely. Uh, so in a way, this is all backfired on them as they as they press for ever more consolidation um, and uh, achieve the ever more uh, orthodox uniparty point of view. All they have done is to make us stronger. You know, by delegitimizing themselves, they've served to legitimize us because at least we're honest and we're trying to deal with these these issues and present the news and, and look at it in the way that journalists did once upon a time. Hey, let's check this out. Does this make sense? What's going on here, as opposed to just regurgitating these, these PR flack talking points that the rest of the media is doing? Yep. And I want honest information. And by being willing to sacrifice for honest information, um, you know, to, in order to speak honest information, I actually feel like I recognize it more readily when it comes along. I can tell the people who have skin in the game versus those who don't. Sure. You know, authenticity manifests itself. Uh, you know, I've not met Joe Rogan personally. But I think he's an excellent example of it. He seems he comes across as a genuine guy. He doesn't claim to be the smartest guy in the room, but he's uh, a guy who, hey, let's look at the let's look at this. You know, let's talk about it. Let's let's see what's going on here and see if we can make sense of it. And there is a thirst for that, for just that 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 non-reflexive, non-ideological curiosity and inquiry. Well, let's find out what's going on. What do we make of this? What does it mean? 
That's what journalism used to be about, not about lecturing people about the correct point of view that they're supposed to hold. Yep. I actually had, I started to have a discussion with a couple of people the other day on uh, X or Twitter about uh, hate speech. And they were like, well, don't you, don't you agree that people shouldn't be able to say hateful things? And I'm like, as long as a person's behavior is peaceful, they can think or they can say pretty much anything that they want. It's not my problem. And it's not my job to correct their thinking other than I'm going to put out the best, you know, alternative ideas or the best, you know, the best information that I can to counter bad ideas. But, uh, you know, that that term hate speech is so nebulous. It seems like it could be twisted to fit anything that anybody wants it to. Well, that's just it. Who gets to define what that means? Hateful. You know, in practice, all it means is that uh, it is uh, an opinion, a point of view or even a fact that somebody on the left doesn't like. And it's always the left. You don't hear about people who are not leftists talking about hate speech. It's always the left because the left excels in demonizing disagreement and pathologizing it, uh, just as they did, for example, during the pandemic, when if you raised your hand about uh, about the vaccines and, and had questions about masks, you were a science denier, an anti-vaxxer, uh, all of these things. Instead of, hey, well, okay, you have a legitimate issue, or even if you don't, look, this is the fact, uh, and you should perhaps consider this fact. It was always, you're a cretin, you're a bad person, you're hateful. That's the, that's the tactic of the left. Well, and I think we also, um, I think we underestimate the incredible multiplier effect that seeing one person willing to speak the truth you know, has on other people who recognize the truth but otherwise are feeling a little uncertain or maybe a little bit scared because I'm not sure if it's safe to say this, when they see somebody else saying it and willing to, to take the blows that may follow, they find the courage to do it as well. Yeah, boy, I'm glad you mentioned that because you just reminded me of a saying I encountered the other day that I wish I could take credit for, but it's worth, uh, it's worth spreading. It's that resistance is contagious. Oh, I love it. That would make a great bumper sticker, by the way, for anybody who's feeling a little bit oh, I entrepreneurial. Know. I know, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and don't copyright it. It just it should be like freeware, spread as uh, abundantly as possible. And it's totally true. You know, I found that during the masking stuff, if I didn't wear the mask and I never did, it gave strength to other people. And the more of us who did do that, the more it became possible to just vitiate all of that evil, sick nonsense. The same with the vaccines. You had enough people who said, no, I'm not doing that. You're not going to just pump something into my body uh, without me knowing even what it is, let alone what it's going to do. No, I'm not doing that. We just have to say no to these tyrants and stop being afraid of being called that we're deniers, we're hateful, or whatever the case may be. It's, you know, just stand up to bullies and say no, period. Wow. So I, I have to ask, uh, on the whole, I know you're still doing mask reports or diaper reports, rather. Um, how encouraged are you by what you're seeing in terms of um, attempts to, to re-implement, you know, various masking or, or other, you know, distancing policies? It seems like it's fallen out of favor. Are you getting that sense, too? Oh, I think it is, it is already. It fell out of favor a while ago. What you're seeing now when you see one of these masked people, I, you know, I, I wrote something the other day to the effect they should just wear red masks because it's, it's, it's an ideology now. It's a, it's a religion. People who wear masks, I'd venture to say that out of every 100 people that you see who have a mask on right now, 99 of them are hardcore leftists. It's their uniform. It's, it's their religious uh, uh, um, accoutrement. It's, it's analogous to the, the – um, the, the, I forgot the name of it, the yarmulke that Orthodox Jews wear. You know, that's what it is. It's, it's an expression of a religion for these people. Uh, most normal people have, have, are so over it. They're, they're just not doing it, and I don't think they're going to be able to succeed in getting people to do it again. At least that's my hope. 
Wow. Well, Eric, as always, it's a pleasure to visit with you and to to get to hear that voice of reason, uh, you know, ring forth uh, each Tuesday. For people who would like to to explore your website, tell us a little bit about what they're going to find there. And and if you want to want to you know say something about any of your sponsors, p- please feel free. Well, sure. I mean, it's epautos.com, and I you know count myself as the uh, the world's best because it's the only libertarian gearhead site. Um, as far as touting anything, what I'd like to give a, a shout-out or a mention to is the National Motorist Association, which I'm loosely affiliated with. And this is the outfit that fought the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit uh, back in the 90s and got rid of that. And uh, they're kind of the antithesis to AAA. They actually care about driving and driving rights and freedoms. And so I encourage anybody who's interested in that kind of stuff uh, to go to motorist.org and consider joining the NMA because they're a really good outfit. They're kind of the motorist equivalent of gun owners of America. Good good people. That's a great comparison, a great endorsement. Eric, thanks so much for spending some time with us. You bet, Brian. I appreciate it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for joining us. And a quick shout out here to my sponsors, which include, let's see, we've got uh, lifesavingfood.com, TMCP Nation, that's the uh, modern conservative podcast, my friend John Harvey, and his Iron Sight Brewing Company. This is a subscription coffee company. If you are a coffee drinker, and, uh, you know, I look, I'm, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I understand that there are people who for whom they are just connoisseurs. They know the good. They know the bad. They know how to make the perfect cup of coffee. You want to click on this link and go check out what John has put together. A remarkable subscription based coffee company right there from the roaster to your doorstep in a matter of hours. OK, days. But it's it's very fresh. It's very good. Also, thanks to Quiltonso.com. Appreciate all of them sponsoring the show. Had a very interesting conversation with a friend yesterday who was uh, just on the receiving end of a particularly vicious hit piece. And yes, it was a hit piece by wokesters, particularly, um, I'm talking the kind of wokesters who are professional alarmists. In other words, kind of like the ADL. They, they're out there looking for anything that they can use to, to claim outrage. And Well, look at this. It's an example of anti-Semitism. And it just... It was so interesting in, in talking with the guy, you know, I, I look, I have heard him say nothing that would even begin to equate with, yes, I hate all Jews and I think they should be eradicated, which to me would, would probably epitomize what, what real anti-Semitic speech would sound like. Now, people who criticize Israel's government, its policies, uh, some of its uh, more treacherous interactions with the U.S. I'm talking the USS Liberty and various spy scandals, handing off uh, U.S. technology to China and so forth. You know, for some reason, that is equated with, well, if you notice those things, (laughs) you're anti-Semitic somehow. So it's a minefield in a cow pasture. No matter where you step, someone is waiting to scream, you know, Racist, bigot, anti-Semite, whatever. The problem is a lot of people now find themselves self-censoring, particularly on touchy subjects. And I found this wonderful essay by Mike Fairclough, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, on the hero's voice and finding the courage to speak. This was a guest post on Laura Dodsworth's Substack, 
the free mind. And I thought this was, was worth sharing with you. Now, Michael Fairclough says, as the only UK head teacher to publicly question lockdowns, masking kids and the COVID vaccine rollout to children, he says, I was not alone in my beliefs. Other head, other head teachers privately told me they agreed with my stance, but they worried that voicing their concerns would impact on their careers and relationships. This is despite every educational professional having a legal as well as a moral duty to safeguard children against harm. Now, I'm going to pause right there for a moment and say, how many of, how many of you found yourselves in the same situation? I bet, you, I bet you know people personally who were in a position where maybe I should have said something, but if I did, it was going to cost me. Michael Fairclough says, this prompted him to, to explore ways in which we might empower ourselves and others to speak out about controversial and politically sensitive topics, whether that be gender ideology within schools or the baffling notion of a man being able to give birth or climate change, anti-Semitism, or any of the other off-limits topics. If what we wish to say amounts to lawful free speech, we should say it. However, people are increasingly self-censoring out of fear of reprisals, and unfortunately this can only end badly in the long run. Now, here's what he means when he says that. He says, my search for a solution led me to the archetype of the hero and the mythological quest. He's talking about the hero's journey. Having incurred some rather brutal losses, including my career, I am unable to pretend that speaking out is easy. This is why people self-censor. And he's acknowledging a truth that I think most of us would agree with, and that is, okay, it's definitely safer to stay silent in the short term But he asks, what are the long-term consequences of our silence? Could, for example, the horrors of Nazi Germany and the persecution of the Jews be repeated if people are silent en masse about uh, anti-Semitism? Well, you know the chilling answer to that question. He references Martin Luther King. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Now, he says, as a society, we urgently require symbols and role models which inspire our empowerment, archetypes which enable us to deal with change, to face the unknown, to take risks, and to become resilient. Powerful examples which encourage us to have the confidence to speak our truth, particularly in the face of opposition and within the climates of growing censorship. Ancient mythology and the concept of the hero's quest can provide us with a primordial story structure which has been utilized in numerous films and books and which everyone will recognize on closer look and the image of the freedom fighter, the truth seeker, and courageous warrior. Now, if you're not familiar with what he's talking about, within ancient mythology, the hero or central character often begins the tale living in relatively settled or normal surroundings. They are then called to embark on a quest which in most cases the character at first resists. Change and transformation is, the, is in the train, change and transformation in the direction of adventure and likely danger are not welcomed. They see things along the lines of, why choose me? Or I'm not a hero. Preferring to carry on their lives within the safety and certainty of what they already know. The reluctant hero is strongly resistant to the quest and to what it might bring. Now, eventually, the call to adventure is answered with positive action, and the first stage of their journey begins. Often, this is because the alternative, doing nothing, is worse than the potential perils of the quest. Entering into uncharted territory and the unknown, the hero then embarks on their adventure, and here on in, they encounter various trials and challenges, each one a test of the character's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual attributes. Forced out of their comfort zone and honing new or latent skills as required, the hero moves toward their goal, 
self-doubt, feelings of despair, and making mistakes are typical aspects of the hero's journey. So, too, are moments when the character realizes that they are stronger than they had previously realized. More willing to make sacrifices for others, standing up to opponents, and triumphing over a range of adversities. Toward the end of the story, the hero attains their goal. They, they also acquire and recognize new, often magical, inner gifts. Revelations which would have remained undiscovered had it not been for the quest and its hard challenges. Finally, within most of these stories, the hero returns home, wiser, stronger, and in full knowledge of their new powers. The cycle is then complete. The main character who was to start with, who to start with was uh, resistant to the challenge of the quest, has transformed into a hero. Now, the archetypes of the mythological hero and the heroic quest are potent antidotes into an age of creeping tyranny and often powerful rebuttals to self-censorship and cultural disempowerment. This is where we can find inspiration for our empowered voice and to stand up for what we believe in. He says a gift not only to ourselves, but to our children and to the generations of humanity to follow. Now, he says, you might think I'm casting myself as an invincible hero. Not at all. In fact, the hero's journey is full of times where the main character believes they will not make it to the end of their quest. Periods where they seriously lack confidence and question their abilities. Something which I've experienced throughout my journey and continue to do so when I'm really up against it. However, he says, I've also gained a deeper awareness of my core values and beliefs. I've become more resilient and know that I have defended the well-being of our nation's children. Now, he says, the costs are high but worth it. The prospect of your own free speech quest might feel insurmountable or even futile at first. Until you embark on it, though, you'll never know. You might find yourself defending the underdog. Perhaps you'll speak up against a crowd of different thinking. Your free speech quest might enter you into the global struggle for rationalism, freedom, and the pursuit of inalienable rights. The heroic quest is not just for Odysseus or Luke Skywalker or Katniss Everdeen. We can all be heroes in one way or another. By the way, you really need to let that last line sink in. We can all be heroes in one way or another. It's true. I know. I, I didn't want to believe it either when somebody first pointed that out to me. But it is true. And it's why you need to embrace your own hero's journey. Now, he does point out that to his fourth book, he, The Hero's Voice, Finding the Courage to Speak Out, will be released next year by Skyhorse Publishing. And in that book, he'll expand on the idea of embarking on our individual free speech quests and overcoming self-censorship, something which he regards as one of the most urgent issues of our time. I have a link in the show notes that you can go to if you'd like to subscribe to the Free Mind, uh, the Free Mind Substack. That's uh, Laura Dodsworth's Substack. Probably be well worth your time. I've only just discovered it as of today, and I'm I'm impressed by what I see there. But I want you to think about and maybe just try and have some awareness of the times in the day where you want to say something or you start to say something and you catch yourself stopping and looking around. Is there someone here who might be triggered by what I'm about to say? And it's not because you're being offensive or you're telling, you know, shocking jokes or otherwise, you know, saying things that are there to offend people's sensibilities. Things that are perfectly normal, things which wouldn't have been considered controversial even 10 years ago are nonetheless, uh, you know, cause for, well, looks like we're going to have to meet with HR and get this sorted out. All I did was wish her a Merry Christmas. Ah, yes, yes, you don't need to say that word. What, Christmas? Don't say that word! You know how ridiculous it's getting. 
Nonetheless, I want you to know you are a hero in the making. When you recognize that call, I think you should answer it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment of today's show. Again, thanks to my sponsors. If you want to check them out, by the way, um, my web guy has done a marvelous job of bringing them to the forefront of my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a moment to get to know them. Show them some love. Do business with them. Let them know that uh, that you appreciate what uh, what we're doing here on a daily basis, and they are helping to make it possible. I have three articles I want to direct your attention to in this last segment. One is from James Howard Kunstler. Always a good read if you really want the down and dirty of what is happening you know, with with uh, current events. And he's not a one-note symphony. He doesn't just focus on Biden, Biden, you know. It's it's the whole the whole uh, affair of what's happening culturally, politically. You know, there's, there's some really interesting stuff taking place. And the current hysteria over anti-Semitism on campus is actually revealing some very unpopular truths. Now, James Howard Kunstler, I guess, apparently he is Jewish. He explores what just happened that's causing our current fifth-column saboteurs, the ones trying to undermine the country from within, to stumble. Very decent article, and it will definitely open your eyes to ways that we're being messed with that, that are not always so obvious, but that kind of comes back to the idea. There are ways that cause us to doubt ourselves, to self-censor, to just, you know, shut up and try not to make waves because we don't want the attention of somebody, you know, digging into us. By the way, if you've never been on the receiving end of a real, true hit piece, it's quite an experience. I've I've only had it happen a time or two, and uh, and it uh, I'll I'll admit it's it's kind of a shocker the first time you see wow, this person really doesn't like me, and then you find out, and there's more people just standing by to pile on and affirm yes yes we all hate him we all wish he was arrested. I mean, it's just like holy cow. Never knew that there, there were that many people out there with, with such strong opinions. By the way, these are almost invariably the people who refuse to sign their name to their opinions. Now, in, in this case, you know, my friend who was on the receiving end of a hit piece, you know, this, this is what the people who wrote that hit piece do for a living. That's their job is to go out and smear and smear other people. What do you do when somebody does that to you? I'll tell you what I do. Because first of all, I, I guess I don't have enough impact. I don't have a broad enough footprint that, you know, it's, it's actually uh, causing people to, to, you know, go off and, and go after me. But when they do, I always say thank you for bringing me to more people's attention or thank you for the publicity. And just leave it at that. Well, Brian, what if some people believe it? Well, they will. Some people are gullible that way. But there are other people... And these are the people that I'm actually trying to reach out to who, when they hear something like that, will say, huh, I got to see this for myself. I got to see if he's really the monster that I'm being told that he is. And I'm not trying to sound cocky when I tell you this, but I think for the people who really want to check out things for themselves, the ones who are at least intellectually honest enough to go to the source, I have the utmost faith that they're going to come away understanding that, hey, that was, that was a hit job. Whether they agree with me or not is irrelevant. Some of them will, some of them won't. 
but I'm quite confident that whatever I'm doing can stand on its own merits or fall on its own merits. And frankly, it doesn't require complete agreement from everybody who hears it in order to make it legitimate or make it a worthy effort, at least on my part. All right, moving on. A couple of other great articles here. This one is from C.G. Jones. I picked this up off intellectualtakeout.org. And if you want to give your kids a very solid advantage that will last them a lifetime, teach them to love reading when they're young. Because uh, right now, C.G. Jones is, is uh, talking about three reasons why it's a problem that young people aren't reading classic books. People who read are different. C.G. Jones says, look, one thing I wish I'd have done more of when I was in grade school was read. Granted, I don't recall anybody around me with their nose in a book or suggesting the activity might be enjoyable. Actually, I remember it, though. Of course, I was in an era where, you know, we didn't have screens everywhere and we weren't looking at the tube all the time. Books were our primary means of, you know, getting a look at what the outside world was like. And God bless my mom for taking the time to teach me you know, about the, the glory of losing yourself in a book. To hear her tell it pretty much every morning, that's where they would find me, sitting on the heat vent behind my dad's easy chair, reading something. Because that's just what I did. And that's I, I, I still love to read. I don't do it as much as I used to. But now, it doesn't appear that there's very much emphasis being put on reading for young people. And there's a problem with this. He says the the problem is that when people aren't reading, especially young people aren't reading, they're not becoming better communicators, not being trained as serious thinkers. They're not improving their people skills. So the three problems with, with young people not reading classic books is, number one, reading fosters discernment. And young people who read can help zone in on what's important and learn to ignore what's irrelevant. I don't know how to, to say this in a way that, that makes it clear, but have you ever been to like a city council meeting where everybody's arguing about the, the tangents of some particular issue and then one person maybe making a comment on it? It could be on either side. You know, it could be somebody on the city council. It could be somebody making a comment to the city council. They zero in on the root of what is at stake there. Okay, that's, that's one of the benefits of being a reader, being able to snuff out misinformation and improving your discernment skills so you're not distracted. You're not just swatting at what everybody else is swatting at, but you're actually zeroing in on what's at stake and therefore zeroing in on solutions. Number two, C.G. Jones says reading teaches communication skills. It's often the case that the difference between good and bad information is found in the way that it's communicated to us. No, he says his fiance's grandfather has a special affinity for a quote by William Howard Taft, the 27th president of the United States, who said, don't write so that you can be understood, write so that you can't be misunderstood. Now, he was referring specifically to the act of writing, but that little gem of advice could also be used for how we speak to one another. So if reading is going to be a tool we use to leverage our communication skills, we should take the act of reading seriously. That means sitting with a book, fiction or nonfiction, for a substantial amount of time. You want to be a good communicator? You've got to learn from the very best communicators. By the way, it'll do wonders for your vocabulary. Number three, he talks about how reading cultivates interpersonal connection. 
Reading can also improve our communication skills by sharpening our emotional awareness, which plays a large part in engaging with another human being. One study even suggests that almost one-third of all marriages in the U.S. end in divorce, at least in part or because of, a breakdown in communication between the two parties. So in this way, reading a novel by Charles Dickens or Fyodor Dostoevsky has the power to greatly improve our communication skills. Not only are these two novelists among the very best wordsmiths, but they possess a special ability to develop realistic characters. If we can sit with a book that has compelling characters, it allows us to watch how the characters engage with one another in the fictional world, which can prepare us for communicating with others in the real world. So to read the very best that fiction has to offer is a sort of training ground for our real lives. There's no question that the habit of reading these books has experienced a dramatic downswing over recent decades. But he says it doesn't have to be this way. One way we can begin to change this trend is by reading and seriously reflecting on the ideas being expressed. By reflecting on the ideas someone else has written, we can gain the tools we need to effectively communicate in our own lives. So says C.G. Jones. There's a link to his article in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Man, I, I love when people make the case for why reading matters. And, and it's, it's a great way to, to learn about human nature, to step outside of your own time. And if, if I had to recommend a great uh, you know, author, Charles Dickens or Dostoevsky, yeah, they would be great too. C.S. Lewis, though. You want some real clarity? That guy had it in spades. Just amazing. One last note, and this is an article from J.B. Shirk. Quickly, he's becoming one of my favorite writers on on, um, AmericanThinker.com. It's odd how we speak about the ruling class as if it were actually supposed to exist. Under our system of government, we're not supposed to have a ruling class. J.B. Shirk explains why our shameful ruling class exists, and and why they primarily exist to shame good Americans. Now, again, if you follow politics, you you understand that's that's they do spend a lot of time doing that. You've got to improve yourselves. We've got to do this. We're going to do that. This is one of the reasons why I've unplugged from politics as much as possible in my own life. I don't have respect for the ruling class, and I certainly don't respect you know their attempts to badger me into whatever the fad of the day may happen to be. I'm sorry if this sounds arrogant, but they're not my moral superiors. And I'm not going to, you know, take counsel from a, as P.J. O'Rourke put it, a parliament of whores. Sorry if that sounds harsh, but I think there are better qualified people to help me, uh, you know, follow the light. This is The Brian Hyde Show.